healthcare. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Merely a two-word review just said, shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last minute. That right there is a lot of Welcome back to the Basement Filling Music Lovers. You are now tuned in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin, as usual, and got a uh, got a real special podcast for you. It's an edition of our Discologist series. That's where we go in-depth to not uh, – sometimes an information dump. Sometimes it's just sort of sharing our feelings around an album. Um, we had an excellent one recently. It was a mix of that, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. If you haven't checked that out, please go back and do yourself a favor and check it out, and or just listen to the album. It's stunning, still, in 2017. Uh, what we're talking about today is also another stunning album, and it's something, a band we haven't really talked about. Now, growing up uh, in the 80s, you know, we saw the rise of college rock, and uh, one of the biggest bands of that era was R.E.M., and they were one of my favorite bands of all time. They still are. Uh, I mean, <laughs> passed up, not so much, but... Uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, this band sort of rode with me through uh, a good portion of high school and through college and then, uh, and then through the rest of my life. And uh, here we are, 25 years later, and what some people consider to be their masterpiece, Automatic for the People. Uh, it's got a reissue. It has uh, a bunch of extra outtakes and stuff that if you're a fan you had, but so it's good to see them again. Uh, it's got a show, the one show they did for... For this tour, because they, they well they didn't do a tour, they didn't tour for uh, out of time or automatic, and then they toured for Monster. Uh, but it's a remarkable album, and so I reached out to some of the biggest REM fans that I know, uh, had them down here in the basement, and uh, and we uh, talked about it and got our feels out about this motherfucker of an album. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. If you're ready for that. You're, you're relaxed. You're, it's time to time to go back in time. Uh, let's head on down to the basement during our conversation already in progress. Talking about automatic for the people at 25 years old. vaginas and they bleed and they act crazy once huh? a month and unless they'll get all synced up you don't want congress getting all synced up <laughs> wow all right i mean robots have like a non-zero chance of oh you'd have to go in the ring everybody but zero 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 oh, zero one bathroom, but if you just want to talk about that like the whole podcast <laughs> checked out robots versus women who yeah. should run congress yeah no Fembots uh, have feelings too. I believe that uh, Robin said that once. Uh, Robin, the pop singer. Yes, Fembots. Wait, 
<laughs> you mean Robin with a Y? We're Y. They all have Ys. We're here to talk about a goddamn twenty-five-year-old album. What the fuck is going on? It's you been know, a while since you've 20, been here, Paul. But twenty seventeen. Like, you you haven't seen the desk. You and Carrie haven't seen the desk. That's Michael true. has. But like, so this is supposed to be official can shit. You please and put already, a pic- can you put a picture of the desk in the notes, please? We, yeah, we haven't started. <laughs> we're already like fembots and Congress yep. and bleeding we're all over we're things. We're already a little and, bit fighting. Yeah, a tiny fine. desk podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this is a uh, medium desk podcast. Medium desk. It's, podcast. it's a medium desk. Okay. Yeah, this is evolution, motherfucker. <laughs> um, oh God damn it! I lost it. Everything. Oh, man. Um, that right there should be the clip for the let's intro. Just, let's just talk about Jesus Jones. <laughs> I would talk about Jesus Jones all day long. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Uh, no, we are here to talk about... Uh, Electric people or automatic people or automatic... Oh, no, no. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. In This will be 300 and... Oh, God. 25 episodes? This is... I, I don't know when this comes. Episodes. Yeah, but... In 325 episodes, we have never talked about my favorite band in the entire world, mm-hmm. which is R.E.M. What? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know how that happened. I don't know. I remember, I, oh, I, I sort of do. I tried to review uh, one of their latter-day albums. Collapse Into Now, On the probably. site, huh? Probably Collapse Into Now. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't go well. Oh, yeah, no, you, uh, I think it was... It was, if not the first review we published, it was one of the first one five. One of the early ones, yeah. And you tore it a new one. <laughs> I did not. You were not happy not about it. I did not care for the later years of this band. Uh, the band we're talking about, though, is, is R.E.M. They are, according to Patterson Hood, uh, the greatest Southern rock band that has ever existed. I will uh, co-sign that. Uh, Carrie is making a face. Only because I think... And I was thinking about this during the week that it, I've never thought of them as a Southern rock band. And I'm from the South and they are from farther, farther South than me. Yeah. And I've never thought of R.E.M. as a Southern rock band. Yeah. But well. I, I would agree that they are probably one of the most influential bands in the United States and well should be if you look at their influence on everybody else. But um, I agree with your assessment on their uh, Latter-day works. Mm-hmm. Latter-day works. Thank you. <laughs> so, so really brief history, and then you're just going to have to hit the link for Wikipedia. Uh, you know, back in 1980. There's really not a lot written about this band. <laughs> no, there's not. Uh, Michael Stipe, uh, Mike Mills, Bill Berry, and Peter Buck got together in Athens, Georgia. This was at the beginning of the uh, indie college rock movement or whatever. This is uh, right, it, you know, peak... Ario Speedwagon mm. is what was going on, and and they started a thing uh, that ended with them. I, I think to the end, I think they were like one of the biggest bands in the world. But Murmur came out in 1980, followed up by uh, Reckoning, then Fables of the Reconstruction, Life Search Pageant, which is where I actually jumped on. I'm not going to even claim to to be like, yeah, I had Murmur on cassette. And, to be fair, that was 86, and you were probably how old? Mm. 14. Yeah, okay. I traded it for uh. A, not appetite for destruction, something. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, because appetite for destruction didn't come out until eighty-seven, so you were time traveling <laughs> as a fourteen-year-old, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and then their biggest hit to, to date. Uh, it's probably traded world. it for warrant, given where you're from. Yeah, <laughs> actually, you're right. That, that, <laughs> warrant, warrant, or bullet boys. Oh, bullet boys. See, you and I probably went to the same sort of high school. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, so, uh, document had the uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and and that was still on our IRS. It was an independent album, uh, and that was one of the biggest songs in the world. I think it remains the biggest song in the world. They got a bump up after that to Warner Brothers on Green. 
uh, polished up the sound. Some people did not uh, really love that album. Although me and my lady, who's actually sitting down here, <laughs> raised her hand. She's not going to be on mic. That's good radio right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's got props, um, too. She's showing we you talking, things. We were talking about them. this, about how, how Green was was a pop album. And, it, and in researching this, I was like, I didn't remember being there being really great songs on that. And all instantly, it was like, oh, you are the everything. Uh, world leader pretend uh you know and at this point this was this was pre nirvana clearly five years before yeah mm-hmm. pre uh the indie explosion because mm-hmm. that's really what grunge was about grunge yeah. was about like bringing out the indie bands into the limelight right. nirvana nirvana in that context is a pop band Pearl Jam is Boston, and <laughs> on and on and on. Well, uh, P- Pixies were there too. Pixies, and, uh, yeah, but Pixies were, and, but they were they, pre-dece- right. predating those guys. Uh, they followed up their biggest hit with also the biggest record deal at the time with an album that remains one of my favorites of all time, uh, called "Out of Time." Uh, that was weird mm-hmm. compared to their earlier work. Weird compared to what was going on. You had uh, KRS-One on a white person's album, <laughs> kicking off the white person's album. Uh, you had Kate Pearson of the B-52s, which people had got Love Shack by then, but they, they, weren't, they didn't understand the B-52s. They thought Love Shack was like their first single. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Have you heard of this small band coming out of Athens? And they, and they didn't understand <laughs> that they, they represented, at the time, the entire like, LGBTQ like population and had been underground college for ages. Right. Right. Um, and this weird album won a bunch bunch of Grammys, (laughs) like all the Grammys. And if you watched Michael Stipe at the Grammys, like he just took off shirt after shirt. It was like messages. And it was like, I I, I mean, that might've been the year. Was that the year of soy bomb? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't remember. Soy Bomb was next to Bob Dylan at the pub. Right. At but the, at the, yeah. Grammys. So Bob Dylan was not doing good stuff that year. Uh, so the question then was like, what do they bring? What do they follow it up with? And, uh, you know, Peter Buck is always one to be on pills and talk when he maybe shouldn't. And so he, uh, he would always give these interviews like, it's going to be a rock album. It's going to be the rockinest album ever. And then other guys in R.E.M. would be like, I don't know. Uh, and, and he'd that, do it a lot. Like, he would give yeah. a lot of interviews Yes, like he that. would. Not just one or two. He would just call people up and be like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of fucked up. <laughs> you want to you wanna talk about our next rock album? That album wouldn't come until the album after the album we're going to be talking about. But this, uh, what came after was a band, or was an album, Automatic for the People, that uh, we're going to try to figure out where this sits in the canon of of albums paul you said you revisited it and it was just like a pleasure to revisit it i sort of agree but with all we knew about rem we could not expect that it would start with a song like we're gonna play right now because drive is to my mind unlike any other song in their catalog it's not like anything else is on the radio i mean think about what was going on then you had beastie boys check your head pavement slanted and enchanted def leopard adrenalize um, you had uh, Ice Cube had his solo album out. Arrested Development was up in there. Tom Waits was doing the Bone Machine. Uh, L7 had just started a sort of peak. 
Well, that and point that, Nirvana had come out too. Yeah, so. yeah. Angel Dust, Faith No More, Alice in Chains, Dirt, which is a, another band that I want to do a podcast because I think they get all the credit, but I don't think people really get how important that band was. Uh, so it, it it was a weird landscape and also a lame landscape with Soul Asylum, Grave Dancers Union. <laughs> Screaming Trees. Screaming Trees was good. Screaming, Lionel Richie back to front. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and the year singles came out. Oh, yes. Yeah. The year singles came out. Uh, but nothing, and I mean nothing, sounded like this. Smash, smash, crack, push, whack. Tie another one to the racks, baby. Hey, hey, kids, rock and roll. Nobody tells you where to go, baby. What if I ride? What if you walk? What if you rock around? R.E.M. This is the second album produced by Scott Litt, and it radically changed their sound. This changed it from out of out of time was a, a weird redefinition of Southern Gothic, in mm. my opinion. It was kind of baroque. It's baroque, but that, but yeah. thus the redefinition. And this though uh, was one of those things that is just sort of out of place. Mm-hmm. Didn't make sense. If you were a fan, you immediately loved it. Mm-hmm. It was just that like you were on the, and this was in a time when you followed bands. Yeah, like we in our youth, we we all followed bands like this. My my license plate when this came out said BBM Stipe. <laughs> so uh, Paul's shaking his head. 
Because Paul is not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's dedication. I want to put a, a bit of context here. We were just yeah. discussing off mic uh, when, how old we were when this record comes out. So this is autumn 1992. Uh, I'm a freshman in college, and mm-hmm. I am in the uh, basement of KRLX 88.1 in Northfield, Minnesota, student radio station of Carleton College. And, of course, REM is just about the biggest band of the world, especially in the college scene after uh, you know the buildup from document to green to out of time. And I'm in the record library when the mail arrives. And, of course, it's a big pile of CD singles and promo stuff and 12 inches and whatnot. And they're sort of shuffling through the record library, and it, it's from Warner Brothers. And someone looks at it and it's like, this is the new REM single. We're all kind of looking at each other like, whoa. So, of course, what you know, we rip the darn thing open. We shove it into the CD player. And it starts with that swooping string arrangement from John Paul Jones and it's got that sort of somber tone to it, which is completely antithetical to anything that R.E.M. had done before. Mm-hmm. And it's got that sort of 70s rock quotations from, you know, Rock and Roll by David Essex and, and all this other stuff. And you're like, whoa, this is very different. And we're all listening to it like, this is not what we had been led to expect. Right. And this is also very different from what Out of Time Peter Buck's been. a liar. Peter Buck, I don't <laughs> believe that, man. No, no, there is a guitar solo on the record. <laughs> it, just, pills. It, just takes one. it just takes a while to get there. But it's like it was all the strings and these somber kind mm-hmm. of, you know, mournful tones to it. And it's like, it's not really, you know, what are you going to do to this song? You're not going to dance to this song. You're sort of like listening to it. You can't Ooh, even this make is out to this dark. Song. No, no, you're not going to make out to this song. You're not going to make out to much on this record. Uh, but this is, you know, you I just you remember were in college. I was, <laughs> but yeah, still. No, I just remember the context of Wrong college, bro. It was. No, not for I got that. all the ass automatic for the people. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just thinking, you know, sweetness follows. Right, that was oh, my jam. <laughs> that was my jam. No, it's like, you know, drive. And when that, when that comes in, and we're all like looking at each other, like, this is different. Mm-hmm. And automatic for the people, you know, when the full, re- full record comes out. We're all kind of just blindsided because it is just so demonstrably a different direction from what the band had been doing and had been bringing in tremendous success up to that point. And, and it didn't sound like it was going to be a huge sort of generation-defining kind of record like it ended up being because it was just so somber, so... Well, and weird. It was weird. You know, there's records on it that... You know, there's a lot of stuff on this record, you know, everything... You know, everybody hurts and and whatnot. It's like, oh yeah, it's a big swooping ballad, but it didn't sound like what REM had been successful at before. No, <laughs> and Drive is just so, and it's just they're deliberately putting a record, the first single on the record, the first track on the record that is not the most obvious hit on the record, and and they're doing it because they had the uh, you know the, the marketing clout and they had the ability to do that, and they knew that people would listen to it because they had yeah. that reputation and that uh, visibility at the moment. They I, took advantage of it. I also think they didn't care. Yeah, I think they cared. I, I don't honestly. I don't think that they cared whether it was popular or not. My take on this was very different. But Paul's got stuff to say. Oh, no, go I'll ahead. jump in later. No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. Well, um, I I feel like with this album they were taking a step back because as somebody who um, when this came out I was in law school so I had already been around and I had you know. Murmur and Chronic Town on album because it was before CDs were invented. And yeah. when I was in high, when I was in high school, is when their their initial albums came out. And it was you know you'd pass the albums between your friends because um, nobody had heard of this stuff, and they weren't sure so I weren't playing it on the radio. But you had like Reckoning and um, Fables and Life's Rich Pageant, which is probably one of my favorite albums. Yeah, ever. Um, astounding. And 
when they started to kind of move forward and get more popular in the late eighties, early nineties, um, with, uh, I oh, loved man. green. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I, but it was like a love hate relationship with it. But then out of time, I liked it as an album, but it was like not what I w- was expecting from them. And it was kind of like, Oh, my friend's gone pop. And, um, when this came out, and you didn't say that after Green. Interesting. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I definitely said it after Green. But Green is like when your friend does something really completely out of character, and you're like, "Well, that's a one-off." And then right. your friend gotcha. comes out gotcha. with shiny, happy yeah, people, yeah. and you're like, "Fuck." Yeah. Um. But then when this came out, it it def- definitely doesn't sound exactly like their their older stuff. But I think it is very evocative of it. Mm-hmm. And I just I loved it. And when Drive came out, I was like, "Man, this is a giant fuck you to Warner." Where it's kind like. Of. We don't care if we're popular or not. The other thing that I would note is if you think about where, like, the early 90s, like, at that point, video was just everywhere. Every song had Mm -hmm. to have a video. Now we've kind of flowed back out of that again, where songs can come out, you can listen to music, you don't necessarily have to have a rock video that goes with it. But in the 90s, we had already had MTV for 10 years, and if a song didn't come out with a video... It was not going to get played anywhere. And, and they were – you have to remember, they were as big as they were. I mean, they, they were big because of that deal with Warners. Yeah, exactly. The video from Out of Time for Losing My Religion mm-hmm. is yes. one of the most iconic videos of mm-hmm. all time. Like, but also, so. they, they put out a brilliant video for um, um, Losing My Religion. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of yeah, yeah. boosted them yeah, up. Was- and th- But they, they definitely became much um, – not losing my religion. What was I going to say? Losing my religion, but also um, Johnny Happy People. No, with Johnny, that, no, no, no. Uh, Johnny Happy. The bite. <laughs> um, no, the one I love. That's what I'm thinking of. Where? Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, because they, 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 they were put, always visually oriented. They were always visually oriented, but they had some really amazing, like catchy videos that came in, and they got really big in part because their music was great. But yeah. and they and but they started to make it more for, poppy. The video for Drive is Michael Stipe being thrown around like a rag doll. Yeah. And it is in a in black and white screaming, yeah. mobbing mosh mm-hmm. pit, yeah. which any small band, that's what they're looking for, yeah. is that kind of adulation. Yeah. But then you see Stipe, and, it, and it's one of these things where I feel like they're, li- like they're winking at their old-time fans and saying, we hate this as much as you do. Mm-hmm. And because he is, if you know anything about him, he hates being touched. He he does not like being stared at on stage. He doesn't like, he was like, always had his hair in his face. Um, Kind of like Jim, uh, like Jim James. But um, yeah, yeah. But he. There's an important thing about Stipe too. At this point, he was not out. Exactly. That's part part of it. That's that's a big part part of it, probably. But I just feel like when you, when you heard that song and then you saw the video and it and that those both came out before the whole album did and you thought what is this album going to sound like if mm-hmm. this is what they're leading with um but but he's being tossed around and the video doesn't change it's him being thrown around in a mosh pit for, for like minutes. three and a half minutes yeah. and there are there are brief snippets of the of the band members with an instrument being basically sprayed with fire hoses yep. and it's just like we're doing this because they're making us and that, that's kind of what I, what I, what I took <laughs> out of it. I've never heard taken that, but this that's is, actually This kind is of, what everybody yeah. wants from us. This is what everybody's demanding from us. Yeah. But then the remainder of the album, to me, harkens back to like the best stuff from, from Fables of the Reconstruction. So. But Fables, really. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Paul, Paul, you were... Okay. Oh, you, um, 
Boy, it's, I, I, I was just going to react to uh, something from earlier, saying that this was a record that defined a generation. And I think, to me at least, one of the things about this that's so interesting is that it doesn't really define anything because it feels, to me at least, like such a unique creation, both in the context of REM, but also in the context of... Out of what was Time, going... perhaps? Uh, Which is nah, the wrong album. Nah. What? No, I said it's Out of Time. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, you lost me there, Kevin. It's been uh, a while. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, We're knocking the rest off of Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, baby, will do have that a to beer. you. <laughs> um, so uh, to me, at least, it's because it's such a unique creation for REM, but also for the time period, because everybody's talking about uh, everybody's talking about grunge at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the album's very politically informed, like everything that REM does, but it's kind of it it rides this weird line between really hopeful and completely hopeless at different yeah. times. It's like, I'm really depressed, but it's, I think it's going to be okay. Huh. I'm fighting through it. We've had Republican presidents for 12 years yeah. and that yeah. sucks, right. but we're not going to go away. We're not going to go away. I mean, yeah. Norland addresses that right. specifically. It addresses like uh, Herbert Bush. Yeah. Uh, but this, uh, this came out in October of 92. It was, yeah. it was released right before and, the election. And it was before we had Clinton. Before we had the intensive laser beam polling that we had from last year, which yeah, was yeah, yeah. oh so accurate, um, and nobody really knew whether Clinton and Gore were going to pull it off because they were running against this old white dude you dynasty. Be careful with phrases like that now when talking about Clinton. Mm. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. I mean, you had to be careful back then too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Damn it. To quote a line from Andy Borowitz, when someone says, oh, yeah, what about Clint? Well, I don't like him either. So <laughs> I wouldn't let him grab me either. Um, but it was you didn't know whether or not the country was going to seize on that hope and change and yeah. um, new di- new type thing. And they were I, I remember distinctly working on the Clinton campaign in 92 mm-hmm. and being petrified that. Bush was going to pull it off again. That was going to be the worst thing ever. Wasn't that cute? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so naive at 22. Um, But you just didn't know whether or not the country was going to just continue with this destructive Reaganite bullshit trickle down. Oh, wait. Mm. Yeah. Um, On the hopeful side of that, though, was a song that it stands out for me as a, one of the best songs of the catalog period. Uh, But B, it's one of the weirdest songs in pop history, and it, and it just, it just, like, so the base of REM is the Birds. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what they wanted. Right. Patty Smith, Bob Dylan, and Lou Reed. Yeah, you have to throw Velvet Underground. Yeah, yeah you have yeah. to. But this doesn't make any sense to anything, and and but this is quite literally one of the best songs of all time. This is
Sidewinder sleeps tonight, and it, you even get a, a a glimpse of like the fun they were having in the studio. <laughs> there, Michael Stipe just laughing into the mic because he knows the lyrics are bullshit, <laughs> and but they're not. And and this was the art of not just <laughs> not just REM, but Michael Stipe is is the criticism with this band early on was you couldn't understand him, and if you saw any bootlegs, it was always like mumbles and the mm-hmm. whoever's. And he's, that, to my mind, played like Kutsu, like audio Kutsu, which if you don't know what Kutsu is, <laughs> it's a southern vine that uh, that sort of infests everything, and it, and it's certainly prevalent in uh, Athens. Oh, it's everywhere in Georgia. Huh? It's everywhere in it's Georgia. It's everywhere in Georgia. And, and he, he sort of swam in that space for a lot of albums. Until he all of a sudden realized, oh, fuck, I'm a superstar. Mm-hmm. I'm a literal. I am Michael Stipe. I can do whatever I want. And uh, again, you have to remember this is before he came out. Like this is just this and other songs on another time are just celebrations uh, of him trying to look at things like, hey. I'm a gay dude and we're going to do a song called shiny happy people and we're going to do this fun song and we're going to, we're going to have all this fun and, and be, and be fabulous is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> but this song is also, th- there is a lot of um, their catalog that kind of needs to be explained through time that the, the lyrics are, the, the music is timeless. The lyrics may not be. Um, if you're listening to this and you are under the age of 30, this all of this came out before the internet. All of this came yeah. out before yeah. s- before cell phones. Yep. And particularly with this song, when mm-hmm. I was re-listening to it this week, I was like, God, I have to explain this song to my kid. Mm-hmm. Because my kid is 17. She doesn't remember that. She, she's never had a scenario where you would call somebody in the middle of the night just to fuck with them and then hang back up because they had a phone in their home <laughs> that would ring. <laughs> and there was a uh, an answering machine on yeah. it. That and then you call them from a payphone. This machine will only swallow money, but it's not gonna, you know, get my point across. And so you could call them, and then as soon as they they answered, you'd just hang up on them. <laughs> it's telling just on a later album on the monster. This one, Star, Star sixty nine, exactly. Yes, you know, yep. because I mean, we we did not have caller ID. <laughs> yep, that was right, my next right, point. Right. Is that this was before caller ID, <laughs> and it wasn't until ninety till uh, ninety four when Monster came out that Star sixty nine was a thing. If you don't mm-hmm. know what Star sixty nine is, it's mm-hmm. not dirty. It is when someone called you on your landline. When, when someone called you, what's a landline? What's a landline? <laughs> Check our website. Um, the, but Starmy Kitten, sorry. But so when they, when you called somebody, it would just your phone would ring. There was nothing on your phone that told you what number it was, so you had to pick it up or you would miss your call. And God forbid you would miss a call because yeah. nobody could text you or page you or, or other bullshit. So then um, Star sixty nine, which came in later, was you could pick up the phone if it rang and you miss a call. You would punch star 69 on your phone and then it would tell you what number had called you but it, there was still no message so this this song is insanely playful in that i'm just calling to fuck with her but honestly yeah stop don't do that don't call yeah. and fuck with people <laughs> yeah. that's not nice but but a lot of guys did did do that back in the 
back in the day. <laughs> and, and for the record, three of us looked at you with disbelief when you named Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight as the uh, as one of the classic songs of its age. I, no, 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 I, no, no, no. Only I the agreed. couch. Only the couch. Only the couch. Oh, that's, Only two, the couch. that's two of us. Well, it, it, it would have it would have not been my top uh, three or four choices. <laughs> Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, it wasn't a single, first of all. No. This was not a single on the album. No, Sidewinder Slips and I was a single. Yeah, it was. I love it. I was. I have oh. the CD single, and that's... I remember hearing it, on the radio and thinking, what the fuck? Well, <laughs> we're back to not facts-based podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I have to Sorry, say... sponsors. <laughs> we the, 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 the only reason I know that facts, for sure is now because... We don't uh, have any. Now you only need to give us a five-pack and not a six-pack. I, I didn't own this album when it first came out. Like, I was a freshman in high school, and I wasn't paying 18 bucks for albums at Warehouse. So I knew what was on the radio and this was definitely on the yeah, radio wow. <laughs> okay yeah i have a cd single and it actually has some pretty decent b-sides but <laughs> hey that's 1992 for you well they always had b-sides and that was exactly. the thing about rem is that they were a, they were a goddamn band man and they fucking like so the christmas club forget mm-hmm. about it that, that was the weirdest shit that you and it's been collected in box sets a mm-hmm. few i think i think that survived the flood my cds of that but it's all out there digitally but like they celebrated like rock and roll history, and then once they got to this point, they were like, "Oh, we are rock and roll history, mm-hmm. and and we're gonna do something." I mean, they didn't tour for this, right? Or out of time, right? The next tour was Monster. So Green was one of massive the, stadium tour. They, they, yeah, they it was played the biggest basketball tour they arenas. Yeah, and and it was on par with what U two was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. There were. Two poles in the um, music world. No. I think U2 is bigger, but... U2 is significantly sure? bigger. Oh, yeah. I'm because Joshua Tree was Hampton Coliseum, and so was R.E.M.'s Green Tour. Right, but Joshua Tree was 97. You're talking about Octoon Baby, which was... No, Joshua Tree was 87. 87. What, what did I say? Yeah. I said 97. I meant 80, 87, but you're, like when this came out... It's five years later. Right. right. Well, no, I was talking about the Green Tour, though. Yeah, so so Green they toured basketball I, arenas, and I know that because I saw that tour. Yeah, and and uh, so they didn't tour because Out of Time was was really a studio record, a Baroque kind of studio yep. record, and then Auto- Automatic was was really not intended to be toured with this, you know, the string sections, and everything like that. Although they they did the one the one show at the Forty Watt Club in Athens for the benefit for Green. They also for did Unplugged. And they did MTV Unplugged, and that mm-hmm. was you know at that point MTV Unplugged was a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. they put out records from Unplugged and everything like that. We should probably mention that that live show at the, at the Forty Watt is it's, included on the on the, bo- the deluxe the bonus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so you just mentioned you know REM you know playing up rock and roll history. So on that on that show they did Fun Time by uh, Bowie and Iggy Pop. Yeah, and they did the Trogs, uh, "Love Is All Around," which yep. Mike Mills always sings. Which I, I gotta say, I, I, Mike Mills absolutely by a long shot my favorite member of REM. My favorite sort of like just in terms of like being a great musician, a decent guy, and just really if loving. You're not, if you're not gonna love Bill Bill Berry, I, I don't dislike the other guys too. I just yeah. like Mike Mills more. Now also, so Mike would sing uh, the Trogs, "Love Is All Around," and and they did. They did uh, the cover right around that time of Leonard Cohen's First We Take Manhattan, which is also on the Drive single, but it was from the Leonard Cohen tribute. So, you know, you think, you know, uh, you know, Bowie, Iggy Pop, Leonard Cohen, you know, those are sort of some dark influences. And you start to see some of that on Automatic, but you didn't hear how rocking they were except for that one show at the 40 Watt, which mm-hmm. is on the new uh, Deluxe reissue. 
And then they, they did Drive as like a double-time rock song, which is there very was, different. So the, yeah, and that was on a uh, tribute album or a benefit album. Correct, for Greenpeace. For Greenpeace. So yep. It was all recorded like using Solar Power. So, solar Power like, yeah. Mobile Recording Studio. Well, yep. Yeah, and, and that was the double-time version of that. And it was like, it was amped up. Yep. And you were like, whoa. And like, funnily enough, that is the sound that they landed on a monster. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what Peter Buck was thinking of in those years beforehand so so i I have a request i want to talk about um the sort of the the tone that permeates uh certainly sweetness follows and Mm -hmm. find the river and night swimming and this is often interpreted as a record about fear of death and about you know acknowledgement of mortality and so stipe in more recent years he's talked a lot about some interesting things that were you know, challenges that was, he was facing in his life at the time. He had aging grandparents. He had a dog that he loved that was, you know, at his, on his last days. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that gets to me was that he had feared apparently for years that he was HIV positive. And he, yep. and he was afraid to be tested because he was afraid that either the consequences would be, you know, life shattering or that it would get out to the public and people would, you know, start talking about it because he was still in the closet at that point. Yeah. And so, you know, it's perception that automatic is all about you know fear of death and there's a lot of that but what i was listening to it today and yesterday and i was like this isn't just about fear of death it's about sort of taking stock on the life that you've lived so that's not fear of death that's more like you know acknowledging the beauty and the sadness that you know pervade your life as you look back on it and night swimming to me which is exemplary is mike mills piano song and and the piano is is impeccable. The strings by John Paul Jones are just gorgeous and understated. And it's really one of Stipe's best vocals ever. I think it's really one of the absolute classic songs of R.E.M. And they sort of tuck it away on track 11. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's after, after the pop hit. The oh, one, yeah. The one super – Absolutely. The one actual pop hit, Man on the Moon. Man on the Moon. And but, then they, they tuck it away with Night Swimming and Find the River. You're like, oh, my God. It's just, it's just spectacular. And it's not sad. It's just, you know – contemplative it's yeah. sort of reflective on on what had led the band and and stipe presumably up to that point in his life and it's just you know a tremendous achievement they could not have done that when they were doing fables or when they were doing yep. green or even out of time i mean it's just it's just a more mature sounding band that's looking back on what they've achieved to date and what michael stipe had done to date and it just tremendously moving to me. I mean, I was listening to it today and it's like, oh my God, this is fantastic. So Night Swimming is is, my pick of the album. It is very much in the the vein of people. We we mentioned their influences and stuff, but obviously they were influenced by people like Joni Mitchell Uh and uh, Carol King, the whole Laurel Canyon. I mean, this is a perfect song. And, And this is Night Swimming. Night swimming deserves a quiet night The photograph on the dashboard Taken years ago Turned around backwards so the windshield shows Every street light reveals a picture Still it's so much clearer I forgot my shirt at the water's edge The moon is low tonight 
not like years ago. Fear of getting caught, of recklessness of water. They cannot see me naked. As things they go away, replaced by every day. Night swimming, remembering. Coming soon, pining for the moon. And what if there were two side by side in orbit around the fairest sun? The bright tide of ever drum could not describe night swimming. That's a perfect song. That's a it is. Song. The depths of nostalgia on that song. Um, you have bands now that have put out some really good albums, and then they kind of hit 40, and they move to dad rock. Yeah. And then you have <laughs> R.E.M. that put out brilliant albums in the 80s, one right after the other, year after year after year. And then they hit their 30s, and they put this out. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, oh, I'm getting older and... uh. This is so like evocative of what someone who's 86 years old and looking at the transparency of their own skin and mm-hmm. thinking, I'm going to die, and looking back on everything that's been important in their lives. Yeah. This is like, it's like not, not dad rock, it's like grandpa rock yeah, or yeah. great well, grandpa rock. Yeah, the, that's it's the stock taking, you know, taking stock and what, what has been beautiful and what has been painful in your life. And that's. That's what's amazing about the record. Like, they're not young people at this point, but they were by no means, you know, facing their own mortality. They're, 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 okay, they're first of all, they were yeah. our age. Uh, no, 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 they were way, they were significantly right. younger when this younger. Came, This was when they, they had, they, seriously, oh, this Jesus. was written about what turning have we done 30. With our lives? I know. No, that's I know. not possible. <laughs> now we need to make our own mediocre album that will never live up to this. But like, Just because Michael Stipe had no hair doesn't mean he was that old. So, you're right. Yeah, he was. This was when they were turning 30, because I yeah. was 22. You're you right. were how old? I was 19. Slightly. Uh, yeah. 14. So, 14. <laughs> you were 14. Shut <laughs> <laughs> it all. But it's, it, it, listening to this as a, you know, again, as a parent, I haven't listened to the album all the way through until this podcast came up. Um, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed the hell out of listening to it again. Um, but I would always pull pieces of it off for like making kid mixes and stuff. Mm. And Night Swimming and Find the River both are just fantastic. And my kid loves Sidewinder. Mm. Yeah. So, because it's like such a fun, stupid song. And, you know, also in revisiting, you notice that there's like a lot of downer songs in this. Yeah. I mean, Man on the Moon, which we're not going to play because you've heard the fucking song. You heard it. <laughs> yeah. Um, is a fantastic REM song. It's, it does what it's supposed to, and it's iconic, and 
and it, it honestly sold them. Did I forget this? Did this album win Grammys? I'm pretty sure it did. Oh, it actual? A... I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It won we all the Grammys. <laughs> Paul's looking it up. <laughs> Do the internet. <laughs> album of the year for 12 years running. What can I tell you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oddly um, enough, it won on Mars. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of downer. I, sweetness follows. So when this mm-hmm. album came out, my aunt was dying of cancer. And I would get drunk and insist that I was going to put together a string quartet to play that song at her funeral. Because at that point, we knew she was going to die. Right. Uh, that didn't happen, but I did listen to the song on the way to her funeral. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's a lot of downer songs in this album, but the biggest downer, I've been listening to this album, what, 25 years, obviously. I have been listening to it a lot lately, knowing we were going to do this. And the question always comes down to, what is Everybody Hurts? <laughs> is it a genuine statement that is meant as best as the band members can do to help heal people? To what you were talking about coming out of like 12 years of Reaganomics? Uh, is it speaking to just depression straight on? Is it like what was so bad then that you would have to have a song that the entire message of the song is simply you're going to be okay and everything sucks, but you are for for everybody, for everyone Mm -hmm. and you are going to be okay. And, in 2017, uh, and to be clear, I started listening to this album at the beginning of this year again, and this song in particular. In 2017, we've got a lot of uh, trauma <laughs> inflicted by uh, political uh, people, inflicted by just the situations. Uh, just the, the the bad shit that it's not it's not been a good year for humanity. Because it's not way. just I mean let's be honest it's not the, just the political people it's the jackasses who put him in power and continue to support. Well, and it's not just America. Oh, exactly. And it is it is a recognition that there are certain forces that are prevalent that are always going to be there and we're always we're always going to have to fight them. Yeah, and and so. With that in mind, and and being older and dealing with that type of stuff, like I, I want to play a little bit of this song. Not because look, you've heard it a million times, but <laughs> consider the message of this song and and think about the video. Whenever you know, everybody gets it's, a, it's one of the most iconic videos of all time. But uh, and if you've seen the movie Falling Down, think about that. Yeah, see the movie Falling Down. Think about that. But this idea that somebody, and I do think it is kind of brave to just be like, we can be pop stars. Or we can try just throw out some sort of connection to the rest of the people, and and yeah, and and so. And please keep in mind that the song comes right after Sidewinder on the album. It does. <laughs> it does. Does everybody hurts? When your day is long and the night, the night 
Hurts by R.E.M. You know, depending on who you talk to, that is the most revered or reviled song. <laughs> um, which is, it's funny because I mean that in listening, like I was saying, in listening to it now, uh, it is one of the most uplifting songs. Is like getting later in life, de- and I, I've talked about this, but dealing with anxiety and and minor depression. You need, and sometimes it's not like you guys are some of my best friends, but sometimes it's not even that. You you just need an anchor. And, you need Michael Stipe. Yeah, but you need to you need to feel this is how you. One good thing about this basement being destroyed was it, it fully reconnected me with my love of music because I was fucking tired of it. We had 300 fucking episodes of a podcast. You, know, you, th- you do threaten to quit every other week. Yeah. And and, <laughs> and now I'm just like, I cannot get enough. I, I cannot, you know, I, I I will sit upstairs and listen to like the Cures Disintegration on vinyl. Like it's that connection. And in listening to this remaster, the connection to this song was just like a lightning bolt. It was 
all the members of the band, Stipe in particular, because he's first and foremost, but all the members of the band putting themselves out there and just not even being like, hey, you can call us, because, again, no cell phones. <laughs> you know, but, but like, we're, we are disconnected, but despite that, we are all connected. And that, um, they made it literal in the video. Yeah. Right. And, 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 but that, that thought is. Now that people have YouTube and don't have to wait for them to show yeah, it on yeah. late night, uh, late yeah. night MTV. That, that thought, you can I, that go thought find I think it. gets lost a lot of the time in, in conversations about just like who we are as a people and cultures and, and you certainly don't see any music today. We're going to be talking about Taylor Swift and now it's all about Taylor <laughs> Swift. And that's actually not okay in 2017 because. That's what our president does. Makes it all about him. Yeah. Well, no, I, I I'm going to disagree with you a little bit right there. That I think that part of what made this song unique is that people didn't have access to as many different musicians then as they do now. You had access to what was on the radio. You had access to mm -hmm. what showed up at your music store, unless you had you know some in with an underground you know tape sharing group or something like that. You you didn't have uh, the broad base that we do right now, and I agree that massive pop stars aren't doing this right now. Yeah, but there are plenty of folks who have the freedom to be sincere, to really lay it out there. Everybody's if they're looking has an easier way to find music that they can connect with at this point. If mm -hmm. you can wait, now, if yeah, you can yeah, wait, now, if yeah, you can yeah, wait yeah, the for noise sure, for sure. Um, pop might not do this, but that's what made this unique. Is that this is this was on MTV. Yeah. This, oh, was, yeah. it was, this, this was. Wait a second. We're gonna. This yeah. Hilariously, at this point, R.E.M. is pop. It was ubiquitous right. by that point. I yeah. also, yeah. I, I kind of appreciated how the openness of that, like just the rawness of that song, and then you also well, had yeah. um, "Night Swimming" and "Find the River." I mean, mm -hmm. it obviously affected quite a few bands moving from from that point starting forward. So you had like the the grunge um, group coming out from the Pacific Northwest, and but then. A, a year after this comes out, you yeah. have Pearl Jam's Verses, which has yeah. elderly lady, elderly mm -hmm. lady at the counter of a whatever the yeah yeah, yeah. Walmart. Else. I can't remember. No, no, no it's behind Wait, no. the counter of the drugstore. Another band we've never talked about. But and they could easily have fallen into the the just grunge. You can't understand what they're saying. It's this you know uh, encapsulating this whole anger thing. But they put out a song that Eddie Vedder must have listened to this album fifty times oh, while yeah. he was crafting. Yeah. Because the lyrics in that song, and that ended up being on the radio, and you can say it's a yeah. pop song, it's a single, but Elderly Lady at the counter behind a drugstore, behind the drugstore booth, where it's talking about the frailties of age, and I cannot find a candle to light your name. It is just, I mean, I remember hearing that, and I was in my 20s and thinking, God, that is good writing. It's good writing. And it's so and, nice to hear and, it being and, played. And, and you would see, you would hear some of this in... Dylan is what people held that up to. Like Dylan was writing about stuff like this, but mm -hmm. you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. But Bob it. Dylan is also 900 back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but you wouldn't see it in pop music period. And, and what this band, I think not just this album, but this band did is, is in discovering what they were. Right. Uh, 
Unlocked, well, and, and just the, and the unlo- use of they, language. They unlocked that and made it okay for everybody to do that. But also uh, uh, clarifying sorry. clarifying the lyrics so that you could actually understand what mm-hmm. he was saying and get the depths yeah. of what he was saying, get the levels. And much as I don't personally consider them to be a, a southern rock band, they used this really evocative southern vocabulary, mm-hmm. like yeah, like the, the elder vocabulary, like pining, like mm-hmm. I, you know, nice women. They, they use the word mm-hmm. pining. You don't hear that word. No, I mean, you when don't. you hear it, it's just like you immediately are. 80 when you hear that mm-hmm. word. I was just going to say, we might want to clarify pop music didn't do that and do it well at that time because uh, <laughs> yeah. the uh, I, I want to remind somebody, everybody of another song that came out in 1992 that tried something similar. It was called Runaway Train. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, well, well, no, and that's why I that's, like soul anything. That's actually why I threw shade on on that album a little bit because that album was a mega hit. It was huge. That song was a mega hit, and they clearly were fans. Everybody was fans of REM. REM was the band. If you were in an alternative band, because that was the term now, there were the there was no indie. It was college rock. That's what they called it yeah. earlier, and then alternative. You know, and uh, you know, you wanted to be REM. There was no higher pinnacle. Like this is what you were looking at, and. They, I, I, how would you describe Runaway Train like its failings? Uh, it's, it's like a Tom Petty song with worse vocals, if you're being uncharitable. <laughs> Tell us how you feel. No, I, I, I actually... <laughs> if you're going to start slagging on Tom Petty on this so, couch... No, I like Tom Petty, and I, and I actually like Soul Asylum. So Get I, off my couch! I, I, I had a funny experience. This is a, 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 by the way, I bumped into Dave Perner at a, at a Chris Whitley show in Portland, Oregon once, and I was chatting with him about And the Horse You Rode In On, which yeah, yeah. was a uh, previous solo song. And I actually think, you know, they were okay for what they did. They had, no, they, 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 they did not they, have they the aspir- great band. They did not have the aspirations of a Barry Buckmill type, you know, in terms of songwriting. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, you know, a record like Elderly Woman well, or, uh, you know, Runaway Train, that's got an empathy. And I think that's. Don't that you say R- those in the same sentence? R- I don't know. I mean, REM, I think this record to me, the one word synopsis is empathy. It is, it is, it is understanding of how people feel, whether it's positive, negative, you know, fearful, uh, mournful, mor- mortal, people feeling mortal. A lot of that is, and Everybody Hurts is ultimately just a song about empathy. It's like, I understand that things are difficult for other people. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I'm going to support you. It's not a profound statement, but sincerity is you know hard to find sometimes in popular music. And well, and then you also have sweetness, sweetness follows. That's very important. Which is just this beautiful song about dying. And there, there are points in that song that you can hear. Stipe seems to be really careful about using his voice to just crush you <laughs> because he's got an amazingly uh, versatile voice. It's you can always tell it's him, but he go he, he doesn't move up and down on the octaves, but he moves up and down in this emotional range where there are times when he hits this like tuning fork of misery. Mm. And there's a couple of very brief snippets in sweetness follows where it hits. And you just think, Oh, thank God mm. he's not singing the entire song like that. Mm. Because if you think back to like the wrong child, which was thrown <laughs> I, right in the middle of green, yeah, you're like, Oh, Oh my God! Really? Yeah. Yes, I don't. It's just so. I, I was going to play this song, but because I'll, I'll probably cry. I won't cry, but I'll, <laughs> I'll cry. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, this is uh, "Night Swimming" is a perfect song. But "Find the River" is, is a very very this close is also, second. This is also a perfect song. Uh, this is a little bit of sweetness follows. Ready and to bury your father. Did you think when you lost another? I 
It's it's these little things that will pull you under. Live your life full of joy and wonder. I mean that if if you don't hear that and want to live your best life or whatever millennials are calling it these days, what were you telling me? It was like my full self as the youngest uh, person in the room. Uh, <laughs> no, oh. Oh. I always forget about Paul because he's um, old man Paul. It's true. Oh, Paul is crying. Yes, yeah, because he's allergic to cats. <laughs> he's he's not crying. You're crying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't care what Stipe was, what trip he was on at this, but I, but what he sort of him and the man gave to the world was, I mean, this is a handbook for dealing with like downerism and dealing with grief and dealing with good times. But, you know, and it points back to parts of the career where you could be like, Hey, we're going to have a dance party in a fucking church. Let's do that. You know, but it also says, Hey, we're not going to be around forever. And maybe, if they had gone out with this album, mm. it would have been like, yeah, okay. Instead, they went. I know you said you don't like Monster, but uh, I do. I do like Up. Mm. I like Up. I'm one of the few. Well, that's it. Well, you know, let's get into that a little bit as we start to round this up. You know, Monster put them in a different category, which is what all these albums after Green did, uh, and drawing a new kind of fan New Adventures in Hi-Fi though worked all this stuff into it and and for me that album was actually almost my favorite R.E.M. album really? yeah and it's the end of R.E.M. I I love Up I do it's not R.E.M. though 
it's just you have gone. to you have to accept up as a whole different band. Yes, right. And um, but if they had ended here, like you know, you would have seen a band like that that started. It, it it's a life cycle. It, they start young and scrappy. And they do all this stuff, and they reference their rock and roll history, and they get some fame, and they go through it all, and then they land on a meditation on just life as it is, and it becomes twenty five years later, in, even at the time it was released, just one of the perfect meditations on that. <laughs> I struggle to find an album that can inform me more about the melancholy that I can feel being a 45-year-old man or 45-year-old person than this. Because there's joy in being older. You know this, Carrie. Damn! <laughs> oh. it's, it's just a wise one. <laughs> didn't see that it, coming? It's funny because it is true. No, th- th- there's joy in being older. I just, um, I just got back from my 30th high school reunion this weekend. Yeah, and it was the best reunion that we've had yet. It was fucking so much fun. And part right. of it is because we kept looking around and saying, "Guess who's still alive?" Us. <laughs> and it was a horrible. And yeah. joyous and like you just appreciate shit so much more. You're also able to put stupid shit away. And yeah. that's, that's why it is. That's actually the. That, yeah. You're able to put stupid shit aside and get big picture on things. And that's why in looking at, again, I had not listened to this album until the way back from Winchester, Kentucky um, yeah. this past weekend. And I listened to it over and over again and made my kid listen to it. And she remembers a bunch of the songs because I put them on her lullaby tapes when she was a kid. Mm. And she loves the rest of the album now as well. And in reading, you know, different liner notes on it, although they don't have any, in reading different uh, different reviews of it and looking at it as, you don't think about the fact that they were 30 when they wrote this. Yeah. And I look at this and I'm like, I'm 48. This is brilliant. Yeah. How does somebody who's 30 write this? And you're, what the hell have I done with my life? <laughs> So well, they burned out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know they gave the world plenty more than they uh, you know owed us. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, uh, after after Bill Berry left, they weren't really the same no. man. So, no. um, I was thinking about something. You know, it's so it's November, right? So this record was released October nineteen ninety two, and it's so autumnal. I was just thinking about how mm-hmm. autumnal the record is. You, you know, you can practically feel the days getting shorter and the chill in the air and the record, the way that the strings kind yeah. of make you shiver a little bit and it's just so on point for an October kind of feeling record. It's a pumpkin spice album. Pum- oh, that's not nice. Oh, that's unfair. <sighs> I don't think REM deserved that. Um, but so, you know, it's like, it's got this autumnal sensibility, you know, you're looking back, you know, it was beautiful the summer, you know, when we were swimming in the river, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. And now things are getting cold and the nights are dark and glee and gloomy. And it's like, yeah. I'm probably going to die by spring. Oh, they, well, that's also very, yeah, possible. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking, you know, it, it conveys this, this sense and it's just the right time of the year for that record to have come out. And I hadn't thought about yeah. that in a long time. It was like, it was October. You know, I, I listened to it in October in Minnesota in, uh, you know, basically in Minnesota, October, like wintertime. You had like six hours of daylight. <laughs> uh, yeah, plus or minus. Uh, but it's like, I remember listening to that record like, ooh, you know, it's got that chill in the air to it. And you really feel it and, you know, Sweetness Follows and, and uh, Find the River. And, and, and it just, the record just 
closes with this impeccable trilogy of songs, Man on the Moon, Night Swimming, Find the River. And you're like, you just want to sit quietly and contemplate, what have I been doing Man on myself? the Moon, which we will not play. We don't need to play it, but I mean, it's a great song. <laughs> it but, is a great song. Uh, but you just sort of sit quietly and think, what have I done with my life? Am I, am I doing the things that are important? I mean, a lot of this record is, what's important in your life? And you look back and you think, oh, you know, some of these things were... Some of these things were really important, and Sweetness Follows sort of exemplifies that, and and that, Find the did, River. Did and, that hit you, though, the first time you put this on? Well, I mean, the first time I heard it, of course, I only heard Drive by itself, and that left me, you know, sort of, if I recall, my feelings of 25 years ago, it was like left you feeling a little unstable, like you're not sure where is this, where is this going. Right. But when you listen to the whole record, you, you know, you have those sort of blasts of guitar on Ignore Land and some, you know, poppy pieces from uh, Sidewinder, but... It does we, can be, we can be clear. Ignore yeah. Land is a shitty song. I it's just it's pretty bad. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I, 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 to, I mean, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's one of the better songs on the album, but it might be one of the more um, resonant songs for the current uh-huh. moment. Okay, right. I just don't think it belongs on this particular. Well, it's, it, it, it just gets stuck in the middle. It's right, like it's, it's between Monty and Starmy Kitten, and it's like it doesn't fit there. Um, yeah. But then you try to think, where would it go? It wouldn't. There's nowhere it goes. Yeah. yeah. But what I like about there's I like the guitar on. I like the way it sounds like the Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be not the best you know record REM did, but yeah. So <laughs> I, I mean, like, but I mean. I, I I like I like Ignore Land better than Sidewinder, but it actually I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I think oh, it, there's some fighting words. <laughs> I think it kind of I mean it kind of fits narratively. Well, if you take it was, this, it was if right you, before the election. Yeah, if you take the album really as a reaction to living under 12 years of Reagan and Bush Reagan and being Bush. somebody who doesn't agree with their policies and who's you know people as you found out later on had been particularly victimized by those policies. Uh, you know, having a, something where he's explicitly just railing against things that happen and then saying, this is just me venting my spleen. Well, yeah, he literally nothing. says, I know that this is vitriol. Yeah. I- <laughs> and, then he, and then you slide into the end of the album. Right. And, so. and I guess for, for me, if, it, if, if they're putting it out as an album, I would have liked to have had it a little bit more balanced. You can't have it, just to listen to it all the way through, which you did when this came out in 1980, 1992, because you didn't have the Internet. Um, you listen to it start to finish, and then that just pops in the middle, and then it goes right back away. Mm-hmm. Like if, if there had been something to it, balance it, plays like it a document hanger, right, right, exactly. And I feel or, like if that it, had been it pulled out, on green. it could have worked it could, on. It could have worked on green, right, but, but like really, that would go with Orange Crush. But mm-hmm. if you pulled it out by itself and had it as a as a standalone piece, that would have been really, I think, much more powerful than mm-hmm. burying it in in the other softer. More empathetic songs. Would you feel differently about it? This is total hypothetical, but would you feel differently about it if you had had it in front of Sweetness Follows and then had Sweetness Follows leaving, leading into the back end of the album? I, I, I was thinking about it today. I was like, where would I put it? I'd probably put it at like number four and then put New Orleans instrumental yeah. mm-hmm. have behind it. And have the break it, right And there. have the instrumental be like the sorbet between the rest of the album. Sorbet. But Musical I don't like Man on the Moon, so for me, I was, it was easy enough to just skip mm-hmm. right over that and... Head on into man to I'm headed nice swimming and find the river. So <laughs> so so to wrap this this one up, like what what do you get? Uh, start with Paul? Like what do you think the legacy of this album is? I you know it, it's one of those that's hard to assess what the legacy is because I think it means a lot of different things to different people. Mm-hmm. We've heard that just in this room right here. It depended on 
where you were in your personal life cycle, but also whether you were already a fan of REM, how yeah. far how far you were uh, listening to I it. I can't imagine hearing this if I wasn't a fan of REM. But the well, thing is, a there, lot there, of people did. There I were, know they did. There were, I, I, I can't even begin yeah. to understand. There were a lot of people uh, who came to this as their first one. Right. There were yes. a, there were yeah. a lot of people who like me were in middle school when Out of Time came out. <laughs> Heard that on heard that on MTV. I thought that was it. That that was REM. Yeah, and thought that was REM. Like I didn't know <laughs> anything about previous REM. I was like, oh, I losing my religion. That's and you can't that's just fine. go look it up. Hey guys, you'd have, have to you heard Man on the Moon. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have to go, and you'd have to go to your record store yeah. and then like ask the scary guy behind the counter, hey, is, do they have any other albums? And then mm. he would look at you derisively, like, dumbass. Yeah, kid. you don't want to be <laughs> that guy. Like, no, you nobody don't. wants to be that guy. Yeah, and so then you know this is the first one that you might have heard the entire album of instead of just hearing the snippets on MTV. Yeah. Uh, so that's a very different experience than someone who's been following them since murmur or, you know, picking it up even later in the eighties, like you were saying you did. And then the experience of somebody now looking back on it, knowing there's a catalog, looking at it on Spotify and being mm. able to, sw- to sweep through it and pick it, pick out the songs you like is going to be a different experience there. But I think it's got something for, it's one of the rare albums that's got, a lot for anyone at any age who comes to it, whether they're experienced or not. Yeah. Carrie, what do you think? Um, I appreciated it for what it was, which was a reminder to early nineties listeners of what REM had been in the eighties. And then also became, I think kind of a playbook for what you could do if you wanted to continue mm-hmm. to be a rock star and, and get away with it so that you had, I feel like it kind of pulled back grunge and future pop rock artists from going completely out on a limb and saying, you know what, you can still be real. You can still be a good lyricist. You can still make music that actually matters and people will actually listen to it on the radio. Yeah. Um, mm. it, it is impossible for me to think about this album by itself. Like it has to be in the complete context of REM as, you know, yeah. as an historical element. Like my, Paul's saying, if somebody... Decide, yeah, if an 18-year-old comes in now and is like, oh, I've heard of this band R.E.M., uh, I heard they're important, it'd be like us looking at The Who, you know, mm-hmm. coming in in the 90s and saying, well, okay, now I'm going to explore this band called The Who. And <laughs> then you go back and it, I celebrate their whole catalog. Yeah. Um, looking at R.E.M. as a historical event, um, I think this album is incredibly important for what, what it did, which was basically a clapback to where they had been. And then... Um, we're not going to continue and put out an entire album of shiny, happy people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think for all of the four of us, we had all listened to REM and as they had developed up to the point oh, yeah. of, and it'd be really curious, like you Except said, for to, Paul. to find, <laughs> to find <laughs> someone who, who you lump Paul exposed, whose first exposure to REM was automatic. Because to me, it just makes such a, a perfect narrative con- continuation of where they'd come from and, up to that point, and then they kind of, you know, went a different direction after that for obvious reasons. You can't, you can't continue that trajectory after automatic. You can't keep going in that direction. You're going to end up, you know, with a, you know, I don't know, the the eighty year old Leonard Cohen record when you're thirty three, which is not <laughs> going to be working. Uh, but I mean, I would be, I would be very interested to know what a, you know, a twenty year old who's never really paid attention to REM thinks of this record today because I just yeah. don't know where where it would fit. I think the the last three songs, like if you don't love those last three songs, I don't know what 
kind of music moves you, but <laughs> it's it's not right. But you might be a robot you, you politician. You may not be. You may not be the right kind of human being. Taking it all back to the beginning. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the, some of the bits are. You know, I don't think Ignoreland dated well. I mean, I don't think. Uh, I, I don't. Know, I don't quite know why they put an instrumental in the middle of the record. I couldn't figure out what the point of New Orleans instrumental was. But that's okay. Sorry. It was Sorry. just sort of a palate cleanser. But I mean, like the record's so important to me. Like, I mean, I've still got the same copy I've owned for twenty five years. It's yeah. still very good shape, by the way. If, now, if you rely on 25-year-old computer files, that's not going to be the same thing. Um, it's a floppy disk, man. A, the floppy, yeah, the three-and-a-half-inch floppies. What? You know? Um, but, I mean, that rec- the record's just so important to me. Like, I think Carrie said earlier upstairs, like, you put the record on after years and years and years, and every single lyric and every guitar and string bit is instantly mem- memorable. Like, yeah. you remember all of it. Because you listened you to it so much. You, you obsessively <laughs> listened to it. And it was, you know, it's sort of that moment in our lives. And now Paul's a little younger, so it may be a different situation. But No, I think Paul upstairs said that he'd listened to it 85,000 times also. Yeah. He just yeah. listened to it in his 14-year-old different body versus life, yeah. us. <laughs> but it's, it is an album that I, what you just touched on. You listen to it over and over again. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to No, I mean, it, so, I mean, it's, it's to me, it's, it's not 100% impeccable because there are bits on it that, that I kind of wish maybe hadn't been on this record. But the, the high points are just so unimpeachable yeah. that, you know, they're just exemplary for their, for their, for their time and, and for what they're trying to do. I mean, it's a really difficult record to have pulled off. I mean, they're, you know, they're the, one of the biggest bands in the world. And they're going to do a song, basically a song cycle about facing your mortality. And they're, you know, they're not 64. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not, they're not even 44. God damn yeah. it. We're all 44 ish. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, they, they pulled off a really difficult thing. And, and it's a record that could only have been made by people who really knew how to work well with each other. I mean, you know, Barry Buck, Mills and Stipe, and then John Paul Jones on the string arrangements and Scott yeah. Litt on the production. Yeah. Like that is just a collaboration that these people really knew how to accentuate each other's strengths. Yep. And and if you listen to the demos, which are on the new um, deluxe issue and whatnot, you see where the songs were coming from and how Stipe frequently didn't think about the lyrical pieces until the songs were really well constructed. A lot of his and that, his, that was his actually his, his MO for this yeah, entire, yeah, yeah, the yeah. entire band. But I mean, like he somehow managed to like listen to the way that the songs were growing and then find the the lyrics and the way to sing them that really really built the songs up and mm-hmm. and you saw just how good the songs were when they were just still instrumentals a lot of the song mm-hmm. i was listening to yeah. the, some of those instrumentals like oh those were beautiful i mean but they needed michael stipe to add his you know his songwriting sensibility stipe, to it all which, which we haven't said uh is one of the great voices of rock and roll oh yeah i mean he's a tremendous he, he you know there's there's croons, nobody i mean when people say R.E.M.ish. They mean they mean the guitars, and they mean the birds. Yeah, they just don't know better to go back to the birds because that's Peter Buck just rips off the birds, and he does it well. Nobody, and I mean nobody, since well in my lifetime has been like those are stipish vocals. <laughs> well, I think I think people tried to imitate the sort of the the. You know the you can do the cadence the mumbling and the you cadence can do mem- mumbling and the cadence, but, but you yeah, w- cannot. Once he started like really enunciating and singing with the full strength of his voice, you saw just what a tremendous singer he was. Well, he and, and Chris, he and Chris Martin did a. Um, I can't remember whether it was for Hurricane Sandy or whether it was for Katrina, but they did a uh, a fundraising song that is still just. I mean, it is 
hauntingly gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whatever you say about Coldplay, Chris Martin has a dis- somewhat distinctive voice, but there are 10 other people, you know, Travis, that I, sounds I, just I, like I, him, but um, nobody sounds like Stipe. I, I agree. I forget which album it was for, but there was, um, which you might, lady, you might be able to let me know. Uh, or is he sitting in the back of a cab singing Brandy? <laughs> it's Looking Glass. Huh? You have a Looking Glass? No, 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 no. Michael Stipe is like is is promo for an album, and he's sitting and he, they're asking him about his favorite song. He's like, "It's Brandy." He like, starts singing it. Yeah, and he's singing "Brandy, you're a fine girl," oh. and it's amazing. <laughs> and it is it is absolutely perfect. Like his his voice is just simply is one of the greatest voices in rock and roll history. And and the fact that nobody has been able to even imitate it, I think it makes a case for it might be the greatest time will bear that out. But yeah, he's like, he brought that to this mm-hmm. and that's a secret ingredient. Oh yeah. I mean that it, it adds, it, you know, the songs start great and then he makes them really distinctive and, and puts them in a different, yeah. uh, in a different level. I was just thinking, you know, we saw the green tour. I think a couple of us saw the green tour and he used to sing as an acapella, um, solo on the encore he used to sing henry mancini's moon river mm-hmm. and i keep thinking of moon river when i think of like songs like night swimming like these yep. gorgeous rich right. ballads and you know that's sort of stipe's in that heritage canon. yeah you know he comes from that sort of heritage musically but he also made songs that now fit in night swimming fits in that canon if you look up um it's in the sun it's the gulf coast release i believe and it's from 2006 it's with chris martin and it's just a beautiful song and they raised a shit ton of money for that. For, and that was Katrina in Alabama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Alabama, mm-hmm. for the uh, Gulf Coast relief after Katrina. Lady, you got anything to say about this? You don't? <laughs> sure. I can swing the mic to your direction. Sounds good, thanks. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, to wrap it up, I, I think this album is the way all best albums like this that... that uh, it's a milepost in, in our culture, at least musically. Uh, but it's truth. And, and that's the albums year in, year out, that we all respond to the best. Like, if an album is true, what it's saying is true, uh, then that's it. And that's when you can tell an artist has tapped into that whatever universal flow you believe in. And... <laughs> and is put it, you know, Laurie McKenna, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that album, uh, Foxygen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different universal flow, man. <laughs> but, but he just wants to make sure you're all awake. But Father John Misty's, uh, pure comedy, bullshit. Oh boy. Well, we don't want to start fights on this one. Um, but it's too late for fighting. Yeah, but 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 this is truth. But they're they're part heart, part art, uh, part heart, part trash, part garbage, part truth. I think yeah, that was along that, that line. Yeah. That was the name of of their box set. That was what they used to describe REM as, and then that's what it was. And this album, they uh, they peaked and got it all, <laughs> and uh, twenty five now. Which means we're old because yeah. we're still talking about. But everybody hurts, Kevin. Oh my! Damn it! <laughs> Thanks for hanging out, guys. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> and uh, you can see Carrie 
up and down in the Poconos. <laughs> Give your waitress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're out of here. Don't, right. don't, don't have your waitress on the ass. She's not like River to the ocean goes, fortune for the undertow. None of this is going my way. There is nothing left to throw. Automatic for the People by R.E.M. Uh, it still sounds as fresh, as innovative, as remarkable, as life-affirming, uh, as crushing as everything. Uh, everything that it was uh, today as it did back then. Um, thanks to the team for coming down, hanging out, talking about this album. And uh, we're going to be closing up the year here pretty quick. Um, so we have about three or four more episodes, I think. We're going to be talking about coming up on Monday. You got Mavis Staples. She has a new album out called If All I Was Was Black. It's excellent. Me and Marcus Dowling are going to be talking about that. I uh, also want to tell you about Langhorn Slim's album. It's one of my favorite. There's a lot of late, late entries into the year end thing that are turning out to be some of the best albums of the year. Uh, and then got a couple surprises for you. And then we're going to be uh, year end, taking, taking a few weeks off. That's it. We're out of here. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody! I hope you're hope you're doing it well. You know, we we do it on uh, Friday, so our family is rolling in here in about 15 minutes. It's going to be joyous. Uh, love the halls, and um, that is that is Daria's family, and uh, and we're just going to have a good old time seeing each other after we haven't seen each other all year, uh, and uh, hopefully heal a little after this fucking year. <laughs> uh, so that's it. We're out of here. Uh, we'll be back on Monday talking about Mavis Staples. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>